Well, good morning, church. Um, well, I am Pastor Justin. Uh, I'm the youth pastor here, so if you don't know me, it's probably because you don't have a teenager. Um, but I, I usually preach, um, it's usually the Sunday before New Year's, um, so this is the first Sunday after New Year's, and so I'm going to begin with a question of who has already failed on their New Year's Eve resolutions, right? Uh, I know that's always short-lived, and so, um, yeah, so we have been going through the book of Romans. We're in Romans ch chapter 3, verse 9 through 20 today, uh, and we have a lot to cover. Uh, it's a pretty heavy passage, as you, as you will see. Um, I think that's why Ed decided to give it to me to deal with the groundwork of it. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's get into it. Uh, in verse 9, it says, What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have, be they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceits. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, by the works of the law, rather, through the law, we became conscious of our sin. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to pray real fast before we begin this. God, I thank you um, for this opportunity to be here. Lord, I, I pray over this passage and sermon, God, I, I pray that you would just speak uh, to us, speak through me, God. I pray that this would be uh, your words um, and, Lord, that I would just be your vessel. Um, and, um, God, I pray that this would lead us towards you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Uh, so last week, uh, Pastor Matt, he kind of made a joke. He said, you know, hey, the, the youth pastor can get up here and read my sermon notes, and maybe we would have a shorter um, sermon uh, and I think that could actually be true today, because as we read through this passage, the overwhelming message and first thought that comes to my mind, and, and maybe yours, is that, wow, I really, really stink, and I need Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray. Um, but uh, we're not going to get off the hook that easy, uh, because really this passage is, is Paul is leading us into what I would, would call in the depths of the depravity um, of our hearts as humans, and, and basically how we are just <laughs> wretched sinners. Um, 
And so we're just going to dig right into this. And it says, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Here, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So since the beginning of chapter 1, verse 18, so Paul, he, he, he has his introduction in chapter 1, and it, it's the last kind of point up into this moment, or the following, that it's, it's kind of been depressing, and it's been challenging, and, and, and really he's been, he's been leading up to this question that he states in verse 9, and he says, well, well what are we going to do about this? From this point, if you haven't seen, if you haven't been with us, right, it it begins with God's wrath on the unrighteousness in, in chapter one, and then he goes through idolatry and lustful desires and him giving us over to these passions and to these desires. We see harsh judgment on mankind. We see the law condemning us. And last week, Matt really took us through of, of how God ultimately doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. Now, he, he kind of was nice and said, but God still wants you, even though we're not quite there yet. But God doesn't need us. There are two key terms here in, in these first two verses. It says, to be unrighteous and to be under sin. They're practically the same thing. So to be unrighteous is a positional term, meaning that we stand before God, not in right standing with him, because we have wronged him. And to be under sin is a legal term. It is though if we, are, we have a spiritual passport and there's only two possible stamps on there. It's under sin or under grace. And we are citizens of sin. And then Paul, he makes this astounding statement for the readers. And he says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike. And he's saying to them, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're religious, it doesn't matter if you're a pagan, all are alike under sin. So the, pers- the same person that lives a life of, of tremendous immorality and debauchery, who seemingly fits every description that we've read in Romans up to this point is under sin in the same way as the person who is religious, who tries to follow the law, who tries to have good morals. You two are the same. I would say it's been, up to this point, it's, it's been kind of sad to read in some senses. It's been depressing. It's been challenging. But now we get to the point of this letter that these readers, they're likely just feeling incredibly offended. You mean to tell me that I am the same way as this person who doesn't care about the law? I am the same. I have the same legal standing. Now, this isn't saying that every person is as sinful as every other person, right? It's not like there's degrees of sinfulness. So, of course, there is a difference in sins and and, and, there's a difference between a petty theft or or trying to rob a Brinks truck, right? There's, There's obviously different sins and we're not all as sinful as the other, but rather what it means is that all of our legal conditions before God is the same. And we are all lost. 
An illustration I, come ac- I came across in, in, in reading about this passage was basically if, if you take three people and they decide they're going to swim from Oregon to Hawaii, right? They go out to Cannon Beach, they're like, I'm going to swim all the way to Hawaii. Well, it turns out the first person can't really swim and he, he drowns before he meets a haystack rock, depending on the tides. But he, he drowns almost instantly, we have another person who, who gets past Haystack Rock, maybe even five, six miles, but eventually they drown as well. But then you have Michael Phelps, who happens to be the third person, but he's, a, he's just a sprinter swimmer. He's not a distance swimmer. And so after 100 miles, he also drowns as well. Is one of these swimmers more drowned than the other? No. It doesn't matter who swam further. None of, it, none of them made it to Hawaii. In the same way, the religious person may trust in morality and follow rules compared to the pagan indulging in sinful ways, but neither come close to creating for themselves a righteous heart. They are equally lost. They are equally condemned to perish. All are under sin. Have I depressed you yet? Because it's going to get worse. (laughs) Thanks, Jake. I don't know how many of those I'm going to get. So we get to this understanding that there are no works. There is nothing that I can do, especially compared to other people, that makes me righteous before God. To be totally honest, like when when I hear this bold statement, right, that Paul is making that all are under sin, um... For me, when I hear it, because I was raised in church and and raised in a pretty fundamental church, um, I find myself not so offended by it, right? I think I pretty quickly get to a point of, well, you know, of course I'm under sin. Of course I'm a sinner. Like, I, this was... My, my, my parents lovingly, I think, tried to ingrain this into me that, Justin, you are a sinner, right? So when I was in kindergarten, uh, in gym class, the, the, the gym teacher decided to get out marbles, and, and he was teaching us marbles. And I remember seeing the marble, being amazed by the marble. I loved it, and, and I guess I was sneaky enough that, or he just let me get caught, but I guess I was sneaky enough to stick them in my pocket, and so I take them home with me because I wanted the marbles. I'd never seen one. That's so cool. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm making clear here that I'm, I'm a wretched sinner. And then my middle sister who sees me playing with the marbles, and she's a wretched sinner because she told on me, right? So she tells on me. And so my mom, she takes me to the gym teacher, and I have to apologize, and I'm crying, and I'm so sad. Um, and I remember my mom, though, after the punishment, she was trying to ingrain in me. I, I vividly remember, Justin, you did this because you're a sinner. <laughs> you know, and, and you can agree with that, disagree with that, with age, with, you know, do you. But that was my mom's approach. And I remember that lesson that from the very, from, it's a lesson that I teach teenagers, because we all know they're wretched sinners too, right? So we... We, we hear this a lot. I hear this a lot. And I don't find myself to be offended by it. But I think I don't find myself being offended by it is because I've, I've kind of become desensitized to it. I think 
on the surface, for me, it's easy to, yeah, of course I'm a sinner. I've heard that my whole life. And what we see here in this passage is I think the, the overall message and conviction is that not only do we have to accept that we are sinners, but we also need to accept the effect that, sinful not, that sinfulness has in our lives. It's easy for me to accept the fact that I need to lose weight, but it's hard for me to give up Chick-fil-A, right? It's, it's easy in principle to understand that, yes, this is true, but it's hard when I have to get into the nitty-gritty nitty details of my life and begin to turn those over to God as well. And so what Paul does here in this passage is he begins to list off from the Old Testament. So we remember that the readers here, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the law. They were the religious. They were the people who tried to follow the rules. They were the ones who were offended by this. So they're reading through this, and they're recognizing all of what we're about to read in the next five verses is quotes from the Old Testament. And Paul takes the Old Testament and literally one by one by one by one areas in our life, he shows us and tells us that, yes, sin affects that too. And that we have to go past this mere, uh, yes, understanding, and yes, of course I'm a sinner, to inviting the Holy Spirit into our lives to redefine and to redeem us in these areas. I'm getting ahead of myself. Here we go. Verse 9 says, uh, actually, verse 11. Uh, so we've already seen in verse, in verse 10, there we go. Um, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. We see our legal standing before God has been affected. We went through that. Um, verse 11, it says, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Sin infects our minds and our motives. Because our nature is corrupted by sin, we don't understand God's truth. Ephesians 4.8 states that we are darkened in our understanding because of the ignorance that is in us due to the hardening of our heart. Ignorance does not cause hardness of hearts. Rather, heart hardness causes a lack of understanding, and it results in that we are incapable of fully understanding God. We are incapable of it. And then we get to our motives. None of us, in the second part of that, there is no one who seeks God. None of us really want to find him. Rather, we are running and hiding from him in all that we do, even in our religion, in our morality, in our rule following, in our works. The statement here, we're going to see in this verse and in the next verse, there, there's kind of two, what we could maybe deem, I mean, all of this point has maybe been controversial or offensive, but there's two statements here that I think modern day culture really would take offense to, and the first one is the, the statement of no one seeks God. And I think instantly we ask ourselves, well, what about those who are seeking? I have friends, I have family members that, that, that they pray, they think about religion, they are profoundly seeking truth. 
Paul isn't saying that, you know, well, no, no one's, it's not that nobody seeks spirituality or nobody seeks God to answer their prayers or no one is seeking to have spiritual peace or experiences, right? That all happens. Well, what Paul is saying is that no one prompted by their own decision wants to find and worship and submit and serve to the one true God, In fact, somebody might have an intellectual interest in God or a philosophical conviction that, yes, there is a God, but there is not a real passion to see and meet with God. In fact, both of those ways, not always, but both of those ways can be a ways of avoiding God and keeping him at arm's length distance and being able to control God and being able to do with God what we so please. But rather, it is God that seeks us. He seeks all people. It is the Holy Spirit that begins a work in us and that is drawing us to him. And this is good news, right? So it doesn't mean that God is hiding harder from others and, or maybe one person is smarter than the other or maybe one person has more intellectual than the other. We see here we're all sinners, we're all wretched, and we all can't even understand God. So, of course, it is God himself who is drawing us all out. And that God it died for all people so that he can do this. We see in verse 12, it says, All have turned away. They have together become worthless There is no one who does good, not even one. This is echoing Isaiah 53, 6. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. There is a willfulness about our wandering. Sin can be defined as the demand for self-determination, for the right to choose our own path. Our wills are infected by sin. We get to our, our maybe second cultural controversial statement here, right? The, there's no one that does good, not even one. Is Paul saying that Christians are the only one who can good, do good on earth? And if so, how in the world do you look at the world and you see people who are using their talents and their resources in kind and generous ways. What do you do with that? Are Christians the only one who can do good? But we need to remember what kind of goodness is Paul talking about here. His focus is on our relationship to God and whether our deeds can fix that broken relationship. Whether they can establish a righteousness of our own And the teaching is that ultimately our good deeds cannot do anything to get us saved. In fact, they can leave us further, not closer to righteousness. Furthermore, the Bible sees a truly good deed of being in good form and in good motive. In good form and in good motive. So the illustration here is, right, there's somebody who helps a la- an old lady cross the street, if that's still a thing, right? There's, there's a person that helps an old lady across the street. Now, the deed is good, right, in, in form. That's a good thing to do. 
but why are you doing it? If you're doing it so because the other side of the road is darker and so you can rob her, probably not a good deed. If you're doing it so she can give you money, then if you're doing it because you see somebody down the road looking at you and you want to impress them, what ultimately you are doing is your good deed is really out of the own selfish desires in your heart. So yes, of course, good things happen by people who aren't following God. Of course that is a thing. But when one has an understanding of the gospel, we realize that it is who we are serving in our hearts that matter. Without faith in Christ, good deeds are truly not done for God, but they're done for ourselves. Verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. The image here is is that of a grave with rotting bodies in it. Because that is a great thing to compare your mouth to, right? All the dentists in here are like, yep, that's right. Sinful words are a sign of the, of the decay of our heart. And James, right, James talks about this a lot. He says, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is a deadly poison. Jesus says in Matthew that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We use our tongues, we use our mouths to lie, to protect our own interests, and to tear down those around us. Our relationships. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. Sin affects and invades our relationships. Sometimes we are after each other's blood, like literally. Uh, More often we are seeking to push those down who get in our way. Peace, many times, would not, would not be how we would define our relationships. Why do we become angry with people? We become frustrated with them because they have blocked us access to an idol. Maybe they have compromised our comfort. Maybe they prevented a promotion. Maybe they feel like, made a, make us feel like we're out of control of, of the decisions that we want to make. Or maybe they even enjoy a relationship that we feel that we need. When we do not live enjoying God's approval through the gospel and because of the gospel, we do not know peace ourselves and we are incapable of living in peace with others. Finally, in verse 18, our relationship with God There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the antidote of of we have no fear. We have no healthy admiration. We have no respect of him. And Paul has just gave us this list that as we read and as we process and as we look at, 
It is depressing. It is offensive. It is shocking. It should be challenging to us. It maybe makes you feel uncomfortable, because I know I felt that way, of am I really this much of a wretched sinner? <laughs> am I really this bad? Sorry, can you hit that again? Can you go back to verse 19? It's like my fourth slide there. Thank you. Paul concludes this part of the passage, and he says, Now we know, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We see here that there, there's really only two possibilities of, of how to respond to such a harsh, seemingly harsh message to us. There's, there's only two ways to respond, and it's, it's outlined in, in 19, it says, they may be silenced. And it says, therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, because of the law, we, we, we come up with empty hands. There's, there's really only two ways that we can respond to this, and it, it is this posture of silence, and it is this idea of open and empty hands. And it's uncomfortable to think, because is there a position, is there a posture that is considered more weak than being silent and empty-handed? And it is completely counter to what we want to do. What we want to do is we want to present ourselves to God and tell him how good we are and offering him the works of our hands as our righteousness. But when we do that, what we are doing is we cannot take the righteousness in which he is trying to give us by his grace and grace alone. What keeps us from salvation so many times is not necessarily our sin, but rather it's our good works. Of why would I need you to do this? Or, or look how good I am, especially compared to this person or that person. Or, or how much holier am I than you because of the decisions I've made? We cannot take the righteousness he gives us by grace if all we ever do is come to him with a posture of, look what I have done and look what I can say and look what I have learned. There, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. So what do we do with this? 
what do we do with this? What do we do with this passage that, that hopefully convicts us? And I go back to really my, my, my one point of we have to do more than just accept the overall fact that, yes, I'm a sinner. That we have to take what Paul is saying and, and understand that, yes, I am a sinner. That, yes, sin, does, sin, sin is, I am under sin. But we have to go further with it in, in the understanding of, I am a sinner. And it has invaded clearly every area of my life. And that God calls for us to give us, give him every area of our life. As I was studying through this, something that came to my mind was Mark 12. In Mark 12, one of the teachers of the law, he asked Jesus, he said, what is the greatest commandment of them all? And we know this passage, right? Because Jesus states, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And I hope by quoting that you, you can see the issue here. Because if we are to compare these two passages, you basically have Paul outlining to us the effects of sin in every single one of those areas. And Jesus, on the other hand, is saying we are to use these areas to love God. Ooh, oh, I did it again. I'm sorry. Just click on to love God. If we are to truly love God, we have to understand that sin seeks to ravage every aspect of our relationship to him. We not just have to admit that we are a sinner, but we have to look at these areas in our lives that sin is still living despite our recognition of our sinful legal standing. If indeed sin has invaded every area of my life, how can I always be right? You can ask my wife. I, I, I hate being wrong, right? But the reality of it is, uh, is I'm a husband in a marriage, and so I'm wrong 90% of the time, right? And in the 10% that I'm right, I'm so happy that I'm right, I rub it in her face, and therefore I'm wrong. <laughs> we hate being wrong. But if sin is in every area of your life, in my life, how can I always be right? We see my mind. It is, it, it, you're, I'm going to go through Paul's list again really fast. It says, my mind. Is my mind truly set on things above, like Colossians 3, 2 states, or is it set on earthly things? Like hobbies, like my job, like government. Is my mind on godly things, things above, or am I becoming consumed with earthly passions that are just pushing everything else aside? My motivation, why am I doing what I'm what am I do? Why am I doing what I'm doing? 
Am I motivated by my own desires and wants, or am I motivated by what God has done for me? Am I doing good works, right? Good works is, is fruit of the Spirit, right? That's another message, but they are important. But good works are fruits of the Spirit, but they are solely birthed out of this idea of I'm doing this because Christ has done this for me already. I'm not motivated to look cooler or to look better or to have more money or to have more influence, but rather I am simply motivated by the cross. My will, am I walking a path lit by my own knowledge, by my own decisions or experience, or am I allowing God's word to be a light unto my path? My words, do they show the fruit of the Spirit? Or are they showing the fruit of my own works? In my relationships, am I capable of being a peacemaker? Or am I the one causing chaos? Or want the chaos? My relationship to God... Do I have a fear for God, or do I have a fear of what I could lose? Do I have a fear of what if? If sin is in my life, how can I always be right? We have to, in this posture of silence, in this posture of open and empty hands, right? It's a, it's a willfulness, it's a, it's a willfulness of, of being corrected. And we don't like correction. But we have to be open to correction. We have to be open to being wrong. I think this area is such a challenge for us in culture today. I think it always has been. I think it always has been. But I've worked with teenagers for over 10 years. And I can tell you that it is more challenging today to convince them that they are wrong than it was 10 years ago. And while I primarily work with teenagers... No offense, parents, but I will say the same of you. (laughs) We live in a society of echo chambers, right? We live in, we, we have access to basically any kind of form of you are right. You are correct. You don't have to change. Be proud of what you believe. And in some senses, of course, that those forms can be well, the, 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 all of that can, has an appropriate time, but the more and more we are overtaken by this, the less and less we are open to correction. And for ultimately, right, so how does correction happen? Well, it, it happens through the Holy Spirit. 
But it has to go further than that than just the Holy Spirit, right? Because there's been a lot of people in this world have been like, the Spirit told me to do this, and it turns into a cult, and then a bunch of people tragically lose their lives, right? It is the Holy Spirit is convicting us, but how it's through Scripture. It's through others led by Scripture and led by the Holy Spirit. It's by our close relationships of other people who are fearing God, of other people who don't want what's best for you in the sense of earthly possessions or earthly hobbies or anything like that, but rather it's they want what is best for you in light of the gospel because of what Christ has done for them and for you. And if you have these people in your life, I would beg, I would beg you, listen Talk with them. Ask questions. If you are playing, if you have this role in somebody else's life, I would beg of you, filter through Scripture. Filter through the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind, it is because of what God and Christ has done for us. If we are to ever love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have to see how sin has invaded each of those areas in our lives. And we have to take that and we have to give that over to God himself. And we have to get past, we have to get past just saying, yes, I'm a sinner. To love people. He, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then the second commandment, he says, is to love others as yourself. I think we can all very easily see how sin can affect our relationship with others. In ourselves, in them. It causes us to be short with people. It causes us to be imperfect with people. It causes our relationships to be imperfect, to be messy, to be hard. But the second commandment is to love others as yourself. With this understanding of sin invading all of these areas of our lives, I hope the first thing that comes to your mind is an instant, I am no better than you. That I am under sin just like you. And I am unrighteous just like you. And I am imperfect just like you. You can't love people when you are constantly looking down on them. That I am a sinner. I, I, Ed used this passage a couple weeks ago, but it, it reminds me of, of the passage of, of Jesus is telling the story of, of the Pharisee and the tax collector's prayer, right, in the temple. You have the Pharisee who comes to the, to the temple and he is praying and he's saying, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Thank you, God, that I am better than him. Thank, thank you, God, for all, look at all of everything that I have perceived to done for you. Thank you, God, for all of my good works and all of my good deeds. And I'm not like this tax collector. 
And the tax collector, he won't even raise his head. And he says, I am a sinner in need of you, God. And if I am ever to love people the way you have commanded me to do so, I have to recognize and see that I'm no better than you, that I am capable of hurting your feelings, that I am capable of making a mistake, that I have wronged you in some way, that I have been rude to you or short with you, that I, in my actions with other people, just like my actions with God, they fall short. If I'm ever able to point you to Jesus, we have to be on the same level. We have to have this, I have to have this understanding. It's an uncomfortable passage. It's an uncomfortable sermon to preach. It's definitely a passage that you can use to point to other people and say, look how bad you are, when in reality it is reflecting us. I would ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you in every area of your life. When you refuse to give that up, it creates a separation in you from him. Let's pray. God, this is a challenging passage to hear, to read, to study. And God, I, I, I pray for myself. And I pray for us, God, that we could, that we would be willing to, to lay down our pride, God, and allow your Holy Spirit to convict us, that we would seek to grow in every area of our lives, not just the ones that we are willing to give over to you. And God, I pray that in our pursuit of you, that we would just consistently Look to grow, look to love, look to grow in our relationship with you, and look to point, other, point others towards you, God. And God, I, I pray that we would, with those people that, we have, that you have placed in our lives who are godly, who do seek you, who do point us to you, God, I, I pray that we would be open and be willing, God, to, to hear them out. So, Lord, we love you. 
We thank you, God, for all that you have done in our lives, God, in our relationships. And we thank you in anticipation for all that you will do. It's in your name I pray. Amen.